Well, we've been going through the book of Mark, and we have made it all the way to the 14th verse. Uh, as you know, we are, we are taking our time and going slowly. Uh, there's no rush to get through the book of Mark. Um, that means that, that this sermon may be two or three hours long, uh, but I doubt it. I don't, I don't actually plan on, on going a whole lot over. Um, one of the, the, the things about setting the schedule and getting, getting everything going is I love how even, even maybe despite my own best laid plans, God works things together. The message, the main focus of what we're going to be looking at in this section of Mark is actually very much connected to what Zeke has done and what he was talking about. Um, as, as I was studying through this and, and getting ready, uh, a question came to my mind, and I wanted to ask you that same question. What would it take for you to drop everything and leave? What would it take? Generally, when we think of that, we think of something drastic, something very significant, probably something very traumatic. Um, there's a lot of evacuation orders going on because of wildfires, and people have to drop everything and leave. And I, I understand that. That's, that's scary. That's traumatic. Um, not something that we want to do. But what about in a positive way, for a good reason? What would it take for you to give up your career, give up your maybe retirement, give up everything of the, of the world to follow Christ. Now, obviously, God doesn't call all of us to go across the seas to Africa. And yet, we had one young man that said, you know what? I'm going to go because that's where God wants me to go. And he only did it for, for a season, for a short time. And I don't know, maybe, maybe God will call you to go over there again. Or, or maybe I've known missionaries who live in Africa and are studying the languages and learning the languages and are setting up opportunities like that. You know, we have a tendency to get very, very comfortable in our lives. What would it take to give that all up? The section that we're going to be looking at, that's exactly what they do. And, and you, like me, have probably read through the Gospels multiple times. And you've seen... Jesus walks up to these guys and says, follow me. And they follow him and just kept reading right on by. But this morning I wanted to take a little bit of time and focus in on why do they give up their careers? They're, they're fishermen and they walk away from the boats, they walk away from the nets, and they follow Christ. And ultimately, I'm going to ask you, what would it take for you to do that? Are you willing? Are you ready to follow Christ in that way? Well, we are going to be studying through a, a larger portion than just that. We're going to go from verse 14 of chapter 1 of Mark all the way through 31. And I realize that this is a very large section, and there's a lot in there. But it is in Mark's regular style in which he's moving very, very rapidly and very quickly. And he starts off with an introduction and kind of gives the context and then after that, he's going to go into calling some of his disciples. We're going to see him casting out a demon. And then he's going back to those disciples and, and the four that he has called and, and has another event with them. And so I, I think that this whole section fits together. 
that it is all one section. And so, yes, I know that we're going to move through it very quickly, but I think that we can pull out um, a lot of, of very vital information that Mark is trying to record for us. So we're going to go ahead and read it as is my normal uh, process. We're going to start off in verse 14, and I'm going to read through the whole section. It says, And after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And as he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. And they immediately left the nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went away to follow him. And they went into Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and began to teach. And they were amazed at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. And just then... There was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What do you have to do with what do we have to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they debated among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And immediately the news about him went out everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. And immediately after they had come out of the synagogue, they came into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was laying sick with fever, and immediately they spoke to him about her. And he came to her and raised her up, taking her by the hand, and the fever left her, and she waited on them. Like I said, this is a, a large section, and there's a lot going on here. We, we start off where Mark gives us some context. He says, after John had been taken into custody. Now, you'll recall from right before, we're talking about John the Baptist. That's who had been sent by God to prepare the way for Jesus. Well, why was he taken into custody? Well, it doesn't tell us. It says nothing about that. Now, obviously, we can compare Scripture with Scripture and look at other places, and we find out that uh, John had run afoul of some of the leaders. He had uh, preached the truth and had said, you know what, it is not okay for this leader to have take his brother's wife as a wife, and uh, there's a lot of uh, weird stuff going on. That, that, like, that's not okay. That's not okay. That's not acceptable. And instead of acknowledging the truth of that and repenting, the guy said, well, lock him up and throw him into, into jail. Now, I said that this gives us some context, and this is actually taking place about a year after what we had just read in the previous verses. The, the section right before this sets up that Jesus comes onto the scene, he's baptized by John the Baptist, and then Mark skips over almost an entire year of the early ministry of Christ. It seems a little bit odd, and yet Mark is intentional about what he's doing. He's setting this up so that 
Jesus moves into the area of Galilee. Now, last week we took some time and we looked at the map and figured out exactly where all of these places are. I want to encourage you to keep the, that picture in mind because Jesus does a lot of traveling. And he's going to spend quite a bit of time in the northern part of the country. But Mark basically omits an entire year of Jesus' early ministry. If you want to read about that and find out what's going on, go to John chapter 1 through chapter 3. And it tells a lot of that stuff. But in, in this section, Mark just says, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee. <clears throat> now, this idea of taken into custody is going to come up again a couple more times throughout the book of Mark. It's going to come up and refer to Christ and what happens with him. See, John led the way for the Messiah. He prepared the way and got things ready. And what Mark is emphasizing is God takes him out of the way, and now the focus shifts to Jesus. John had made the way ready by the baptism and through um, preaching and proclaiming that the Messiah was coming. And now he actually leads the way by being taken into custody. We're going to see the same thing happen to Jesus. And later on, I think it's about Mark chapter 6, we're going to see John is executed and leads the way for Jesus as well to be illegally tried, to be unjustly condemned, and to be executed. Mark is letting us know that, that John led the way for Jesus, got things set up, but now the focus is shifting. And so, yes, there's a lot of other things that are happening and a lot of other things that Mark could have recorded, but did not feel like it was necessary to include at this time for, for us as we read through the Gospel of Mark. And so what he's done is set up the context of where Jesus is. He goes into the area of Galilee, and he is preaching the gospel of God. Now, as we go through this, we're going to find several different things, uh, several different words that are used for what Jesus is doing. The first one is preaching. And quite simply, that means to herald or to proclaim. Jesus is letting something they know. It's like the, the town crier who goes out into the, the town square and starts yelling so that everybody knows certain information. Now, we don't really have that today. Um, it would be like the, the alarm systems or the blast texts type of an idea. In some way, he is wanting everybody to know something. Well, what does he want everybody to know? You, you can read it. What, what does it say? He wants them to know, in verse 14, the gospel of God. Now, we've, we've talked about what the gospel means. And obviously, in our time frame, we think of gospel as the good news of Jesus Christ. Well, that's what it is. The gospel merely means good news. And it's a proclamation. Again, uh, all the way back at the beginning, when we looked at verse 1, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mentioned that that's that same idea of proclaiming a victory. If, if a battle was won, there would be a messenger who would come back and announce the gospel, the good news of the victory that had been won. Well, we've got this same idea going on here. Jesus comes into the area of Galilee and he is proclaiming, he's making known, he's, he's letting everyone know this good news, the good news of God. It's, it's about God, it's concerning him. Um, in chapter 3, we're actually going to see that Jesus sends out his disciples to do the same thing, to go out and to proclaim the gospel to others. The next word that we're going to come across here in just a moment is the word saying. Um, this is just regular speech. 
And so what we find is that he is out proclaiming and letting it be known. And here's what he says. He's, he's going to tell us certain things. Uh, whereas preaching is to proclaim, this word is simply the word for talking. This is what he said while he was there. Now we're going to come up on another word here in a little bit. And I want to preface it here with the word is teaching. Jesus is going to go into the synagogue and he's going to be teaching. This can mean both to lecture as well as to discourse or interact, discuss, and talk about things. Um, there's a lot of different ways that the teaching can be done. But the intention, no matter, no matter what type or style or method, the intention is always to instill information in someone else. To provide them with some kind of knowledge or information that um, they need to have. We're going we're gonna to get into that here in a little bit, but let's go back to this idea of preaching. What was Jesus proclaiming? The good news of God. Uh, this is the good news about Him, the good news from Him. In essence, God is both the source and the subject of the good news that Jesus came to proclaim. He's there, He goes to Galilee for the purpose of letting them know something. Well, what is it? Verse 15 goes on to explain... And, and really, Mark is going to take the next about ten chapters to deal with this idea of what Jesus is proclaiming. See, the context that we've been given is Jesus goes up into the north about a year after he had been baptized. And he's there preaching and proclaiming the good news about God. And everything that's going to follow is that idea. Everything that he's doing is proclaiming this good news about who God is, about what he wants to, to be known. And it's specifically two items that we find in chapter or in verse 15. So he, he is preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So he's, he's giving two specific things that Jesus wants to make known. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom is hand, at hand. Well, what time? What time is, is Jesus talking about? Do you have any, any idea what he's referring to here? Okay, that, that he is here and is fulfilling the Old Testament prophecy. Okay, what was... I heard another one. That he's here. Okay. That he is here. Well, one, one of the uh, verses that, that came to my mind was Galatians 4.4. 4. And it talks about when the time was right, he came, he arrived. Another one is um, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, that also deals with this idea. The, the timing was perfect. God had gotten everything set up, and it was the right time. We also see in Luke uh, 16, 16, that, that John is kind of a transition point. That leading up to John, there were Old Testament prophets. There was an Old Testament system, and things were, were being set up. And John is the, the designation of differentiation between the Old Testament process and method and the new covenant that God is about to establish and the plan that God had for the future. And so Jesus is declaring that this is the time, the time that the Old Testament prophets were pointing to, the time that God has prophesied about, and exactly the right time for what God has in store next. The plan was in place, and Jesus is ready to make known what God has in store. Specifically, he focuses in and talks about what? The kingdom of God. Well, what, what is the kingdom of God? 
you were you were starting to answer. Oh, I do. Okay. Well, what what is the kingdom of God? What is that? But this is a phrase that comes up multiple times. It's going to come up actually about fourteen times just in the Gospel of Mark. And so it's it's one that I would encourage you go ahead and take some time dig into. Um, it does have a specific focus on fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. See. God is in control of all things. God is the ruler. He is supreme. He has all authority. He is the king. But this is specifically referring to some fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy that God is going to set up his kingdom on earth. That he has an ultimate plan. That the lineage of David and all of the prophets that are talking about the becoming Messiah who will rule and reign, all of that is contained in this idea of the kingdom of God. <clears throat> This is the rule and reign of God's Messiah. And like I said, it comes up 14 times just in the Gospel of Mark. The king, the one who would fulfill all of the Old Testament prophecies, is on the scene. He has arrived, and he is ready to make known that the kingdom is near. Now, obviously, today we look back and we're like, is near? Well, it's 2,000 years later. What, what is Jesus doing? Is he, is he saying, I'm going to offer it right now and you can start it? But... Why do we have 2,000 years worth of history in which he didn't? Now, there are some who argue about that and contest different nuances of, well, he was offering the kingdom then, but he's not actually going to give it. And I, I don't think any of that makes sense. Yes, go ahead. That is the kingdom here on earth. That, that's what it's talking about. The Eschelotot, the end times type kingdom where, where Jesus is going to rule and reign. And the specifics and details of, well, how is he offering it then? Why, why is he saying it, it is near and it is ready? Um, I don't think that that's really what Mark's focusing on. Um, there's a lot of what ifs and how and, and all of that. What we find, though, is that Jesus is providing a message and letting them know the kingdom is at hand. The king is here, the one who will rule, who will reign. The perfect time is set. All of God's prophecy is ready to be fulfilled. I'm here. So what does he call them to do then? He, do what? He gives them two commands there in verse 15. To repent and believe. Now we've talked about that idea of repent before, right? You remember what, that, what that's all about? It's the idea of if you're going this direction and you realize that's the wrong way, what do you do? Well, you just keep on going and say, no, what, what you said, you turn around and you go the other direction. That's the idea of repent. You, you're going the wrong way, you turn around and you start going the right way. Well, what is believe? What does that mean? Anybody? This is one of those words that's a little hard trust, to define. A conviction and a trust of... Um, something that you rather believe. Okay, a conviction, a trust, a reliance in the accuracy of something. Uh, the, the basic definition is to think to be true, to be persuaded of, to give credit to or place your confidence in. I, I heard a definition that I really liked um, a while back, and it, the, the idea of it was that not only is it something that we think to be true, but we actually take action based on that. When you believe something, you act as if it is the truth. But I like the example of using a chair. How many of you just assumed and you believed that the chair would 
would support your weight when you got here. I'm, I'm guessing all of you, because you're all sitting in a chair, you believed it, and therefore you took a seat. And you put your confidence, your reliance, your trust in that seat. And it held you up. So, so to believe is not merely to say, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Mentally, I, I'll agree that's, that's all well and good. But to actually put your confidence in or take action based on that. And so Jesus is saying, the time is right. God's plan is being fulfilled. The kingdom is at hand. Here's what you do. You repent and you believe. Now, we talked about repentance previously. Like I said, John the Baptist, that's what he was proclaiming. That's what he was preaching. That's what he was focusing on, is this idea of repentance. Turning from sin, turning from your wicked way, turning from where you were going, and going where God wants you to. Uh, this idea is going to come up multiple times as we go on. But it's very easy to say that we believe something, but to actually do it, to actually follow through can be very, very challenging. Like I said, the, the next basically 10 chapters are discussing and looking at and focusing on this proclamation that Christ has made and what He is calling people to do, what He is saying they need to repent from, what they need to believe in. Jesus is basically saying, acknowledge and act according to the good news, the fulfillment of God's redemptive plan. So let me ask you, very simply, do you believe the gospel? Do you trust it? Do you put your reliance on the death, burial, and bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ? Obviously, Mark hasn't gotten into all of that yet. He's going to. We're, we're going there. Um, but we already know the end of the story. We know that Jesus lives the perfect life, never sins. He dies of substitutionary death on our behalf. He doesn't stay dead, though. He's raised from the dead three days later. And He ascends on high and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Do you believe that? Do you put your trust and confidence in that? I hope so. If not, we need to talk. That's what Jesus is calling to them. To believe what they know of God's Word. Obviously, they don't have all of it yet. We, we have learned a lot more. We've heard a lot more. But... Are they trusting the good news about who God is and what He has done? That's what He is calling them for. That's the whole point of everything that follows. Now, uh, I know that there's a lot to cover, but that is the key focus. Repent and believe the good news of who Christ is and what God is doing. That's the key focus of Mark and of what, what we're looking at. So, right after this, we get to verse 16, and we see the first episode of him going out and calling his disciples. Now, uh, again, you can compare the other uh, Gospels, and you're going to find out that there's a lot more information, there's a lot of different things going on, but what Mark's wanting us to, to realize is the, the drasticness of what's about to take place. Um, I, I mentioned how he uses this word immediately over and over and over again. Mark is, very, is, is painting a very uh, impactful, major story that's, that's happening here. And he wants us to realize the drasticness of the decision that these men make. So it says in verse 16 that he was going along by the Sea of Galilee. We've talked about where that is, and, and he's kind of going along the shore. And as he goes, he sees Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. 
Now, obviously, we could take a lot of time and dig into this idea of fishing. Um, the Sea of Galilee was a great place for it. We can learn more about these two brothers, and they, they aren't actually native to that area. They, they probably moved from somewhere else because they had a good opportunity to start a really good career. In fact, from the other Gospels, we find out that they were partners in a business. Um, later, we're going to find out that they have their own home. The, these guys seem to be well set up. They have their own nets. They're getting ready to go fishing. They're actually in the process of it. And as I said, um, John 1 actually tells us a little bit more about these guys that Andrew was a disciple of John the Baptist. So he already had some information. He already knew the stories and the things that were going on and a lot of the accounts of, of what John the Baptist had done. Um, Andrew was a disciple of John the Baptist and was the one who went out and found Simon, his brother. We, we also know him, know him as Peter. Andrew goes out and finds him and brings him back and says, hey, we need to talk to this guy. Um, th but this whole story is rather shocking and surprising. I think that Mark is emphasizing that when he says, Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you to become fishers of men. And they immediately left their nets and followed him. These guys weren't just hanging out and casting a line because they had nothing better to do. This was their business. This was their occupation. This was their career. And Jesus just said, follow me. Leave all that behind and come with me. That's pretty odd. Pretty strange. Now obviously, in and of itself, it's not normal for someone to just leave their career to go do something else. But beyond that, in this era that Mark's talking about, it was typically a student who would go up to the teacher and say, Hey, teacher, may I become one of your disciples? Would you allow me to be your student? But this, Jesus flips on his head. Jesus is the one who goes out and calls them to follow him. Additionally, uh, fishermen, although it was a, a good way to make a living and a decent career and occupation, they weren't high society. They weren't the best and the brightest. They didn't normally become the disciples and followers because they didn't smell real great. They worked odd hours. They weren't necessarily the, the cleanest, nicest. We think of sailors today, and, and they can be kind of rough. That's the type of thing that a fisherman could have been in that era. So it's very unusual, very strange, that he would go out and call fishermen. But when he calls them, what does he say to them? He says, follow me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. Now this is, is significant to them because, okay, we know what fishing is. We're used to that idea. But you start digging into it, and it actually has uh, some references to the Old Testament. And there are different times in which God says, I'm going to draw them in. I'm going to cast a hook. I'm going to send fishers. I'm going to send hunters. But most of the time... In the Old Testament, when that comes up, and I've, I've got a list of, of references for those if you're interested in them, most of the time when those come up, it's dealing with judgment. It's a bad thing. It's a negative connotation. But here, again, Jesus flips it on its head. And so he goes out and he does what's unusual. He calls unusual individuals. He uses this, this idea of making them to become fishers of men, which is a flip from the norm of the Old Testament, in all of this, Jesus is doing things differently. 
And, and the initial reader of Mark ought to be picking up on some of these things that are just like, wait a minute, that doesn't seem to make sense. That doesn't seem to be normal. He goes on from there, and he calls two more guys. Um, in verse 19, going a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat mending the nets. Now, again... Mark doesn't give us all of the information about what's going on and, and who these guys are. We actually find out in, uh, in the other Gospels that they were partners with Andrew and Peter, that they had worked together, that they had these boats, that they, they would function together quite often. But Jesus gets up to them and he calls them. And what is their response? What do they do when Jesus calls them? Drop everything and leave. Now, I, I thought it was interesting, it was striking to me, with Andrew and Peter, Jesus calls them because they were out casting the nets, and the, the phrasing there is like standing on the shore and casting out a net as far as they could throw it, and then reeling it in, and they would, they would catch some fish, they would catch some small things. Um, and it seems, initially, you know, that's not that big of a deal. You leave a couple of those nets, it's not huge. I think part of what Mark is, or is doing is building this emphasis because when we get to the John and James, it's not just that they leave a couple of nets. They were in the boat and they were working on the nets. They were getting them ready. They leave the boat. They leave the nets. They leave their father. They leave the hired hands. And I think Mark is, is building this emphasis like it's not just a small deal to leave everything to follow Christ. This is major. This is a big deal. Now, like I said, from the other Gospels, we find out that they were all partners, that they worked together. And so Andrew and Simon did the same thing. They were leaving a lot as well. But we're, we're seeing this picture of a major, major decision that's being made. They're walking away from their livelihood, their careers, their everything, in order to follow him. And Jesus, all, all that he offers them is, I will make you to become fishers of men. It's pretty drastic. It's pretty strange. So why would they do that? What would it take for you to be willing to leave everything to follow Christ? Well, don't answer that yet, because Mark goes on and he gives us a little bit of information of what happens next. It says that they went into Capernaum, which again, if you remember the map, they've kind of traveled to the northern edge of the Sea of Galilee. They go to Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue, and he began to teach. Now, synagogues and the Sabbath is a little bit different than what our culture is used to. You can think of the idea of like going to church on Sunday, except they had, Sabbath was on Saturdays, and they would go to the synagogue. But instead of one person standing up and doing everything, they would actually have the men, the leaders, would kind of sit in a circle type area and they would have discourse, they would discuss things and they would teach in different ways. Some of them would lecture, some of them would just read from the, the scrolls, some of them would interact and have a discussion about different ideas. There, there was a lot of different ways that, that went on. But Jesus, as a regular Jew, went in as a uh, learned man. He was able, he had the privilege of being able to stand up and engage during this conversation. And so he began to teach. But his teaching is a little bit different. It's unusual. It's, it's not what they were expecting. It's not what they were used to. In fact, 
It says in verse 24, sorry, not 24, uh, verse 22, they were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. See, they were used to a particular way of things being done. Now, the scribes, their normal habit was to uh, give long quotations of long dead individuals. They would quote previous rabbis who had written down their ideas, or maybe they would read a little bit and just read what it said, and they wouldn't have any um, impact, they wouldn't necessarily have any major uh, emphasis in what they're doing. It could become very dull and monotone and just saying what somebody else had said years ago, and that's about it. Instead, Jesus comes in and he teaches as one who has authority. And that really becomes the key focus and the key question as you go through this entire section. Does he, what kind of authority does he have? Who, who is Jesus to walk in and make this proclamation, to tell people what to do, repent and believe, to step up in the synagogue and, and teach things? I mean, who is this guy? Who does he think he is? Now, obviously, we know the rest of the story, and that seems a little bit odd to be asking that way. And yet, that's exactly what we see happen next. He's in the synagogue. He's been teaching. Individuals are kind of surprised. They're trying to figure this out. This is, this is different. This isn't normal. Why does he have the authority to preach this way, to talk this way, to teach? They were amazed at his teaching, and just then, there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. We find out uh, that unclean spirit is the same thing as a demon. So this, this guy is possessed by a demon. And he cries out. And, and the idea of crying out is not just he says something. He, he like interrupts the entire service and yells and, and is disruptive to everything that's going on. He stands up and cries out, what do you have to do? What do we have to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? So let's, let's pause there. In essence, what this guy is saying is, why are you here? Who do you think you are? This is a, a combative type phrasing. It's, it's a Hebrew idiom that's the equivalent uh, of, get out of my face. You don't belong here. You have no business interacting with us. That's, that's what's going on. And so it creates this, this division, this conflict, right in the middle of service. I mean, can you imagine that happening? It unfortunately does in some churches at times. But can you, can you picture what's going on here? Jesus has just been up teaching, and people are kind of like, something's different, something's odd. I, I need to pay attention to this guy. He's, he's actually talking as if he knows what he's talking about. He has authority. He has, he has basis for what he's saying. And then this demon-possessed man stands up and confronts him and starts really an, an epic battle and the question comes down to his authority. Does Jesus have the authority to be in this place, to teach in this place, to do what he has been doing? This is the first direct public challenge to Christ that Meyer records. And I, I find it interesting that the man was there in the synagogue at all. I'm not, I'm not sure why he was there, what was going on, but he, he becomes very, very disruptive. And he asks this question, and the second part of what he says identifies that he knows who he's dealing with. He knows what's going on. He calls him Jesus of Nazareth. Now, this is his human name. His, 
who, who Christ is, and is focusing on his humanity. He's from Nazareth. He's, he is Jesus. That's, that's all that he is. And yet, the demon follows it up by calling him the Holy One of God. And so he knows exactly who he's dealing with. He knows exactly what's going on here. And he asks the question, have you come to destroy us? To cast us out, to wipe us out, to, to defeat us? Well, what is Jesus' response? He, he doesn't actually directly answer any of what the, the demon said. His and his response is, in verse 25, Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. So it's this epic battle that has been set up between Jesus of Nazareth, who up to this point he's, he's been displayed as a, a regular person, an individual who's gathered a few followers, who's, who's starting out as a rabbi, as a teacher. But this is the showdown. This is the initial fight or or conflict, and the, the demon-possessed man says, hey, I know exactly who you are. Why are you here? What are you going to do? And Jesus says, be quiet. Get out. What happens? Throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice, came out of him, and they were all amazed. So they debated, debated among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. And he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. This is shocking. This is amazing. This is completely different than anything they'd ever seen or experienced before. And they didn't know what to do with it. And immediately the news about him went out everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. Now you'll notice, one of the things that Jesus said is, be quiet. And I, I mentioned last week that there's this tendency in the book of Mark to reveal and conceal. And, and Jesus multiple times is going to tell people, hey, don't make a big deal out of it. Don't tell people who I am. Because the time's not right. He doesn't want to draw too much attention to him. We're going to get to some of those. and We'll, we'll look at the specifics um, as we get to each of those. But there are different times in which Jesus is like, hey, keep, keep this under wraps. But no matter what is going on, it can't. There's no way in which something as, as major and massive and amazing as this is ever able to be kept under wraps. The people saw it. They knew what was going on. And so the news about him went out everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. And we're going to see as Jesus moves around and does different things in different places, we're going to see that come up um, as we go through. But they can't keep it quiet. See, when they encounter... Christ. When they see who He is, they have no choice but to let others know. Because it is so amazing, so awesome, so powerful that they go out and announce that to everyone. Well, Jesus just got done proving His authority. He had the authority to teach. He had the authority to cast out demons. But there's another episode that comes right on the tail of this that we need to, to look at very quickly. In verse 29, immediately after they had come out of the synagogue, they came into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Those four people that he had called earlier, all of those now, they leave the synagogue and they go, probably they go to Sunday dinner is the, the type of picture that you can have. 
They leave from the synagogue and from the, the gathering, and they're going to have a meal. Uh, Simon and Andrew invite him over, and they, they go to their house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever, and immediately they spoke to him concerning her. Now, I don't think that, that they were trying to be sneaky and get him to come into the house of a sick individual or anything like that. I think what happened was they left the synagogue, and it's time for lunch. So they leave, and they go to have a meal. When they get there, they realize that apparently Simon's uh, mother-in-law has been sick, has a fever, is not really able to function and do things. And so they bring it up. Now, we don't get the idea that they intended for him to do anything. They didn't necessarily expect him to walk in and instantly heal her or anything of that nature. They just asked her about, or asked him about her. They spoke to him about her. But what does Jesus do? Yet again, he does what's unexpected, what's not normal, what's not the, the regular thing. He came to her and raised her up, taking her by the hand, and the fever left her, and she waited on her. So she goes from being uh, bedridden, sick, to the point she can't get up, she can't do a whole lot at all, to the point that now she's able to prepare a meal and to serve them and to, to be a, a regular housekeeper type of idea, to do what she would normally do. She was then able to wait on them or to serve them. This is the idea of, of like bringing them a meal and getting things set up. So she went from being bedridden to being able to serve. Mark is letting us know this wasn't just a slow process in which she begins to get over it and, and starts to feel better and a couple days go by and then she's fully recovered. So this is instant. As soon as he reaches out and lifts her up and takes her by the hand, she's healed. And she's fully ready to go about her business and to serve them. Obviously, there's a whole lot going on in this passage. And we've, we've gone through it fairly quickly. So what? I always like to ask that question at the very end. So what? What difference does this section make? What difference does this have? Well, in this series of episodes, in these, these events that have taken place, we have seen that Jesus comes onto the scene at the right time, and he has a proclamation. He wants people to know certain things. And the rest of his ministry is about making that proclamation, letting it be known who God is, what God's plans are, and what your response ought to be. And then he goes out and he starts to gather his followers. He starts to call them. Then he proves his authority. He proves who he is by casting out the demons, by being able to overcome this sickness, this disease. He shows who he is. So, I ask you at the very beginning, what would it take for you to be willing to leave everything? It would take something very, very significant, very major. That's exactly what we have seen of who Christ is. His authority, his power, his being is so different so beyond that it was enough to make these men be willing to leave their nets, to leave their boats, to leave everything and follow him. And he proved who he was, that he was worth following. 
Now, as we go through, we're going to find out three of these guys really become the inner circle of Jesus. Andrew doesn't come up a whole lot more, but let's not forget, he's the one that went and got his brother Simon and brought him to Jesus. So it's not that he's pushed out and he's not important. It's just the focus goes to these three, Peter, James, and John. And they kind of become the inner circle of Christ. Now, from what you remember, do they follow him perfectly the whole way? No. I love hearing about Peter and the mistakes that he makes and the things that he does. But Christ has called them to follow him. I know that they don't follow him perfectly. I know that we're not going to follow him perfectly. And yet, the same Christ calls each one of us to follow him. And when you say that I'm a follower of Christ, it's not just this simple little, oh yeah, I, I went to church once or twice and that's it. That's not what he's asking of these men. That's not what he's asking of us when he calls us to be his followers. Now, is he going to have us leave our occupations and our everything behind to go to Africa or to go to wherever? I don't know. He ends up with a lot of followers and disciples who are willing, but they don't necessarily do the exact same thing. My question or my challenge for us is, how are we at following him? Are we willing to give up all of those things? And I'm not saying that it's easy, but I know in my life, I've left from Kansas and gone to the East Coast because that's where God sent me, and I've gone to the West Coast because that's where God sent me. And I acknowledge to him, I'm willing to go overseas, though if that's not where you want to send me, I'm okay with that. But wherever, whenever, and however, Zeke had an amazing opportunity in which he got to go and serve for a short time. He got to see some of the need and some of the opportunity. I don't know what God might be calling each of you to do, but I know that if you are a follower of him, you need to have that same attitude, that same willingness to follow him whenever, wherever, and however. Are you he has said to each of us, follow me. What is your response? Dear Father, thank you for the example of these men who were able to leave their nets and their boats and everything to follow you. When we know that there's a lot more to the story, a lot more that, that goes on, they were able to see different things that you did. But Lord, your miracles simply proved your authority. Father, help us to have that same willingness when you call us to go wherever you might want us to go, to do whatever it is that you might want us to do. Lord, thank you for sending your Son, Jesus, to be our Savior. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.